when you deal with a company, you're rarely floored by a delightful experience that was uh, efficient and, and competent and, and so forth. It's usually a miserable experience, right? So th that miserable experience in part exists because the technology that has traditionally served the space is lacking. It's not, it's not what it needs to be. Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Gustavo Sapoznik. Gustavo is the founder and chief executive officer of ASAP, whose mission is to build machine learning products to solve some of the world's largest and most difficult problems. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that application. He founded ASAP eight years ago, and the company has raised more than $400 million through the C Series round at a valuation north of $1.6 billion. I look forward to hearing more about his journey as an entrepreneur and also his insights about the evolution of artificial intelligence, more generally speaking, among a variety of topics, no doubt we will cover through this conversation. And now for a word from our partner, Codium. The last year has been filled with conversations around generative AI, but are you wondering how to actually get real value today from this revolutionary technology? Codium, spelled C-O-D-E-I-U-M, is an AI-powered tool that is securely personalized to your internal data, making software development teams 20% more productive and often writing over 40% of new code. This clears out time to tackle more problems and multiply your business outcomes. Join a long list of companies from startups to Fortune 500s that have chosen Codium as their internal productivity tool of choice for their software development teams. Reach out at codium.com. That's C-O-D-E-I-U-M.com. And now on to the interview. Gustavo, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you today. Thank you for having me. Well, Gustavo, take a moment, if you would, and describe ASAP's business. We have a very, very simple mission. Our mission is to end bad customer service. And when we say end bad customer service, it, it doesn't just mean the relatively miserable experience that we tend to have as consumers with the enterprises that, that serve us. It, it's it's more broad than that. The problem of, of customer service or customer experience more broadly defined can be really thought as a, a bit of a three-legged stool. One leg of the stool is the enterprise itself that is providing a, a service. Uh, another leg of the stool is the customer that from time to time is in need of interacting with that enterprise. And the third leg of the stool is the agent that works for the enterprise um, that, that is usually in, in the front lines of, of interacting with that customer. So what's remarkable about this problem is that all three legs, um, I can argue perhaps successfully, are, are very broken. If you are an enterprise, you truly uh, dislike the idea of how much money you have to spend on this uh, in this domain. I mean, in the United States alone, it's probably 150 to 170 billion dollars a year. Globally, estimates uh, range from four to 600 billion dollars a year. That's based on roughly 12 to 15 million agents out there. So the economic problem for enterprise and how much OPEX this represents is, is just staggering. For customers, we're all customers of companies, so we understand the frustration. Generally speaking, it's fair to say uh, individuals do not enjoy uh, when, when it comes to, uh, to a time to, to interact with a company. And agents, um, and most people, I guess, don't, don't, don't know or appreciate this, have one of the highest attrition rates of any job type in the world. In the United States, agents tend to have um, uh, attrition rates that oscillate between 80 and 100% per year. Some companies have lower, which is considered good. Some companies have higher. And when you have, uh, again, there's millions of people in the United States that do this job. 
at trading at 100% a year. Uh, I mean, we have customers ourselves who have 50, 60, 70,000 agents. Imagine the operational complexity of, of essentially turning over that entire employee base on a yearly basis and having to retrain. And obviously there's, there's, there's a lag between day one and being highly proficient. And part of the problem here is by the time they're proficient, they're gone and you have to start this vicious cycle over again. So it's a very meaty problem from an economic perspective. For most B2C companies, this is, if not the largest expense they have, likely to be one of the top three largest expenses they have. Uh, the technology that has existed in the space uh, for, for many decades is, is, is relatively speaking, uh, underwhelming. And, and the, the complexity and the operational uh, issues that come with the space are, are, are somewhat staggering. So all of this to say we have this very simple mission of, of ending bad customer service for all of those constituencies. That, very interesting. And it makes an awful lot of sense. Uh, as you point out, we're all customers of companies who offer bad customer service uh, in one way, shape, or form. And you will highlight the the, the remarkable need given the, the tremendous attrition rates associated with the roles behind this. That said, what what was the inspiration of going into, the, into this? I, I, clearly, again, uh, um, the need was there, but what was it about your own experience and your your getting to those insights that moved you to start a business? It's a bit of a of a funny story. When when we decided to start ASAP, our vision and and the purpose that we wanted to pursue uh, was this idea of creating a company that would build AI products to solve real world problems. And that that's a very vague idea. It doesn't quite prescribe what it is you're going to go out and do in the world. So the first task for us became determining: okay, what type of problem do we want to solve? Uh, what attributes does this problem have? And after some thought, we, we we came up with three simple attributes that a problem needed to have. Number one, from an economic perspective, the problem needed to be very large. We wanted to exclusively work on, on very large problems. Number two, uh, we wanted the problem to be very broken or, or in desperate need of, of fixing. And number three, we needed the problem to have large amounts of data so that we could do something from a machine learning and AI perspective. Uh, we stumbled upon this broadly defined customer experience or contact center problem uh, really by accident. I had a terrible, almost three hour phone call with, with my cable provider one day. And that, that made me realize if I'm unhappy, they must be unhappy because they paid someone to be on the phone with me for three hours. I, uh, I started doing some research. I, I quickly, uh, quickly recognized how large the economic uh, opportunity was based on the current spend levels, how broken it was. Um, and how interesting the data was. So we, we we started the journey with this vision of the big opportunity in AI from our perspective is to build applications that essentially automate and augment the world's workflows. Um, and that's kind of our meta vision. Like, let's build applications that automate and augment uh, mostly enterprise workflows. Uh, and But we needed a concrete domain to go do that, at least to do, go do that for the first time. And we landed on this broadly defined customer experience and contact center space because of that accidental three-hour phone call that I had one day. Um, and it met the criteria of um, of those three attributes that we were looking for problem number one to have. And we've been having fun with that problem ever since. I don't think it's going to come to any surprise to anyone that it was a conversation with a cable company that led to that frustration. Let me also ask you... Um, were you seeking an idea to build a business around or did the idea make you an entrepreneur? In other words, were you were you driven or bitten by the entrepreneurial bug 
prior to having an idea or was it the idea itself that was the bug that bit you? I never conceived of a career trajectory that would be anything other than me doing my own thing. And by me doing my own thing, I knew that I, I craved the opportunity of fulfilling a purpose. And, and I think it, the way that it, it, it has manifested in, in the journey of ASAP is a purpose of essentially building technology that transforms how the world works and how the world operates. So I think that the desire to be an entrepreneur uh, preceded the specific idea of, of ASAP in, in this case. Very interesting. Well, I, I want to talk about um, artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, disciplines that you're deeply immersed in and that your uh, product offering leverages to a great extent. Uh, I want to talk about this about the specifics of, of those disciplines at ASAP. But before we get there, as someone who has been so immersed in topics that are uh, of great importance to the business world, broadly speaking, I wonder if you could talk a bit about your own relationship to it and the evolution uh, in your more than a decade of, of being involved with it, the evolution of AI and ML and some of the things, generally speaking, that have you most excited about that evolution. Speaking to you today in early 2024, uh, we have the great privilege or fortune of being at the right place at somewhat the right time, uh, because this very same vision and mission that we're pursuing today, uh, if we were to have pursued it 15 years ago, reality is uh, the idea might have been equally good, the need for it might have been equally grave, but the capability of doing it because of the natural evolution of technology uh, would have made it essentially impossible to do so. So what is the fortune that we are uh, great beneficiaries of today? Well, it, it really is the, the increase in, in, in computation capability, power, availability, speed, and so forth. Compute becoming a lot better, uh, GPUs, all, all of that. Uh, data uh, being available at much higher quantities and some breakthroughs in the architectures of, of, of neural networks that have allowed us to now train these very large models that have these emergent properties. Uh, so all of that has kind of combined to make the current reality a really exciting and transformative reality. Uh, again, 15 years ago, the, the, the compute wasn't there, the data wasn't there, and 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 in the case of transformer-based architectures for training these large models, the architecture itself wasn't there. I mean, there were previous versions of it that were uh, that were good, but but they weren't as good as as the current architectures we have. So what's really interesting is that our perspective, and and it applies to the evolution of of AI in some sense, but it definitely applies more broadly to the evolution of enterprise technology is that before there was enterprise software, you had a very long period of time, counted in millennia, by which businesses operated without software, right? And then we woke up one day and there was software. And that, that, that was a fairly transformative moment for how businesses were able to manage themselves and operate and do things that previously required essentially 100% human effort of sorts to, to do. I would argue that broadly speaking, from that very, very transformative moment of going from no software to some software, 
up until recent times, the vast majority of the evolution of software has been incremental. Uh, whether you had applications that were on-premise and then you had uh, cloud 1.0 and 2.0 and all of this evolution, most of the applications have kind of done the same thing. And, and each new generation, whether it moves from on-prem to cloud or from first-generation cloud to second-generation kind of modern, more modern SaaS applications, the workflows, what a human user of those applications does with it, hasn't really transformed. Of course, the newer stuff generally is better, is cheaper, easier to manage, more efficient, has more features, all of that. But by and large, none of those evolutions have been as transformative as when we went from no software to some software. So now, as we look at uh, the opportunity presented by current artificial intelligence capabilities and what we can see the trajectory of, of, of the current capabilities to be, uh, I would argue there's as large, if not a larger opportunity to build products and technology that transforms the way things operate as much as we transform them when we went from no software to some software. And that is that is a very exciting thing. It's also a very complicated thing because now you have for, I don't know, three, four or five decades, condition ourselves to manage uh, enterprises during periods of um, incremental improvements in technology. So how you need to manage during a period of transformation has naturally have to be different. And that, that involves a lot of change that essentially transcends the, 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 the technology and, and the capability of technology itself. Um, and that, that is an equally interesting challenge is just building the good product itself. Yeah, interesting. And as you have spent a lot of time with tech and digital executives at numerous uh, large-scaled organizations, um, as you think about those that are the best adopters of uh, of these these technologies, those that are riding the trends you describe most effectively, are there any common ingredients um, that that you you believe they have? Uh, anything that's particularly impressed you about those who understand the evolution you've just described, but but even more importantly, take advantage of it? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great question. One that as a uh, product provider to the space, one that we wrestle with quite a bit. And I'd say two things. Number one is. Generally speaking, the uh, crossing the chasm analogy sort of applies. There's some early adopters, then you're crossing the chasm, then you see late adopters and laggards kind of embrace it. What has been remarkably interesting for us is that the early adopters have not necessarily been the usual soft suspects. A young, scrappy startup was not our first customer. A monster-sized Fortune 50 company was our first customer and our second customer and our fifth customer. So what we found is we've been able to find within what you'd expect to be, generally speaking, late adopters, uh, individuals in those organizations that are bold enough to recognize things are going to change. And I'm either going to lead or I'm not going to lead in that change. And I think what, what has made some of these what kind of suspected organizations of being late adopters move very aggressively is in part the recognition that this is not an incremental change, that it is a transformational change. So during incremental periods of time, I think the normal adoption curve probably 
happens the way we've understood it to happen for, for a very long period of time. When it is, in fact, a transformational opportunity, I think it it sparks, in a sense, a great sense of enthusiasm and, and, and boldness and people to recognize, well, I'm here right now and there's an opportunity to do things drastically different. Now, not everyone is like that. And, and uh, the more evidence that one builds and the more uh, referenceability that exists for a given approach that people can get comfortable, obviously that helps. But what we've found is it's really the magnitude of the opportunity that is essentially the wake-up call or the call to action uh, for 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 more aggressive pursuit of of what the opportunity uh, presents. And I think uh, our, our our early impressions is that uh, results are are rewarding those brave ones that say it's time for change and I'm going to lead it because the outcomes are are there to be had. Yeah, interesting insights, and and, and I love the the almost counterintuitive aspects of what you described in terms of those who've been some of the, the 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 greatest drivers of change. Well, let's talk more specifically about uh, the evolution that you just described in terms of artificial intelligence and machine learning and its impact on ASAP uh, and more specifically the impact on the customer contact center. Um, how do you see those forces at play uh, and how are you taking advantage of them specifically within your, your organization? One thing that's uh, unique to ASAP, and then it kind of materializes into the products that we built that serve the the customer experience and contact center space, is early on in our company trajectory, uh, we we started building this AI research organization. We're very proud that we have a, a absolutely fantastic AI research team. And the reason that research team exists is we had a product vision that as soon as we got to medium and longer term objectives, uh, existing technology didn't allow you to make that happen. You needed to make fundamental advances in, in different disciplines, things like natural language processing, um, machine learning, uh, if you want to compute things efficiently and so forth. And, and we needed to essentially make those advances so that we could build the products that we wanted to build. And th that element of really at the frontier type innovation in the contact center space, generally speaking, never existed or, or very rarely existed. It, it, it has been, the contact center space has been a fairly boring space in a sense, uh, in the sense of it breakthrough innovative products. The, the, the one exception would be, I don't know, 20 years or so ago, the, the speech and signal processing community recognized a great application of uh, of that technology is in the contact center space. And you saw uh, one or maybe two companies in particular do really interesting uh, science that became good products. But by and large, it is a fairly underwhelming uh, space. And you 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 see it, not, don't take my word as describing potentially my competitors as being underwhelming. Think about it from your own customer experience. When you deal with a company, you're rarely floored by a delightful experience that 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 was uh, efficient and and competent and and so forth. It's usually a, a miserable experience, right? So th that miserable experience, in part, exists because the technology that has traditional served traditionally served the space uh, to, to be is is lacking. It's not is not what it needs to be. Um, but like I said, if if we had had this vision 15 years ago, we might have been lacking too because. 
the, the evolution of technology itself wasn't at a place where you could make this very aggressive vision happen. So what what is happening today that is radically different than how the the, the space has dealt with this problem for, for the past few decades? Um, I think that can be summarized in really two broad categories of things. And, and, and I'll share our, our own evolution within those two categories. One is you can automate some of these things. And the other one is whatever you cannot automate, you can make the humans doing this task uh, more productive. We ASAP as a company had that as our initial vision. We're going to automate as much as we can. Whatever we cannot automate, we're going to make those humans, which, by the way, represent the vast majority of the cost associated with this problem. We're going to make them more productive. And through the effort of making them more productive, we can learn from how they use or augmentation technology, we can leverage that to increase the pure automation in the space. So that was most of our uh, product vision and capabilities for the better part of five, six, seven years. What has recently happened, and this is by and large enabled by uh, what we see as the emerging properties of this very, very large models that do things that we really two, three, four years ago, thought we're in the realm of, of sci-fi in a sense. Uh, we've taken a much more aggressive stance on automation. And the reason is that we can see, we, we have line of sight to how this space can be fundamentally transformed. And it leads to what essentially can be described as an illumination of the contact center as a thing that uh, that that organizations need to have, which, which is a Again, if, if you go back to what I said a few moments ago, that for many B2C organizations, a contact center is a top three expense item. And now I'm saying that expense item can disappear. And in the act of disappearing, it doesn't make it more frustrating for customers. It makes it more delightful for customers. That is an overwhelmingly uh, desirable outcome. And, and the reason that's an interesting observation is that historically speaking, operators in this in this arena had to make a choice a choice between the cost of service and the quality of service and those things were in opposition if i wanted to have more quality higher quality service i needed to spend more if i wanted uh, to save more it would come at the expense of of the quality of the customer experience so that trade-off is, is naturally a very difficult trade-off for operators to make I think the the very powerful thing about the current inflection point we find ourselves in is that that trade-off has become obsolete. Now it is an opportunity for companies to do both. Do the thing that saves them money, which at the at the same time increases uh, the 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 opportunity to deliver delightful customer experiences. And that that that's obviously a, a powerful inflection point to to be in and, and a great opportunity for these enterprises. And to, to make sure that I'm hearing you correctly, Gustavo, you're you're in essence saying that you you believe we're on the cusp of being able to do away with uh, contact centers. Is that correct? Absolutely. I think if you ask me, or if you ask our very talented uh, technical leaders in our organization, what do you think are the chances that contact centers still exist as they are currently? Uh, in place in three to five years, 
the answer is we don't think that will be the case. We think there's a fundamentally new reality. And let me describe a little bit uh, what that reality means. Uh, take a hypothetical company that has 10,000 contact center agents. Our perspective is that you're going to be able to eliminate probably 9,000 out of those 10,000 jobs. The thousand that remain, especially if you select your best thousand agents, they're going to have a new job. The job is not to speak to customers anymore, is to sit behind this AI layer that speaks to customers and serves as an escalation point for when this AI layer needs human supervision. And there really are three reasons why that human escalation needs to exist. The first reason is a business policy, a company that just says, hey, for XYZ type interactions, I don't care if the AI can do it or not. I want a human being to approve or not approve such a decision or outcome in terms of how we deal with our customers. A good example of that would be uh, a payment extension, right? Let's say you have a bill due from whatever service provider and you call and say, hey, I'm, I'm out of money. I need, I need, I need a two-week payment extension. Uh, a company might rightfully say, you know what? I don't know if the I don't care if the AI can do that well or not. I want a human to make that decision. So that is one instance in which the majority of that interaction can be had by the AI capability itself. But when it comes to that approval, it kicks it up to a human agent. It, the AI tells a human agent, hey, do you approve this? Yes or no? What's the reason or, or whatever the, the parameters of, of that approval might be? And then the human agent responds to the AI, not to the customer. And then the customer keeps dealing, the, the AI keeps uh, continuing that interaction. The other two reasons why that escalation exists is one, there are integ integration uh, blind spots, essentially, where there are there are backend systems this company has that the AI layer that interacts with a customer does not have access to and maybe cannot have access to because there's no APIs for those systems or legacy systems that you can only access at a UI level. And in those cases, the AI might come to a human agent and says, hey, go do this thing in that system over there, come back and tell me what you did, and then I can respond to it and continue the conversation with the customer. And then the third uh, reason why that escalation to a human agent can happen is because the model has deficiency itself. Like the model gets to a point where it says, I cannot, I'm not, I'm not figuring out what, what we need to do here. Can you please help me out, human agent? Those three reasons, by the way, when constructed through this architecture that uh, that, that that we've been working on for, for quite some time, and, and we're very proud to um, be in the process of, of, of releasing to the market, uh, has a very interesting property, which allows these enterprises to do something that's never been done before, which is to make voice agents concurrent. You can now have one human agent talk to multiple uh, customers at the same time because the agent is not really talking to a customer. The agent is essentially an escalation point for the AI that is talking to the customer. And that is a very significant uh, paradigm shift. And essentially the way that you can see uh, a step function change in automation in the space. Uh, and what's really fascinating about that is that if you, let's go back to our theoretical 10,000 agent company example. If you find the single worst agent 
in that 10,000 agent population. Like this is an agent that every time it picks up the phone, it results in churn, like, like the worst imaginable agent. That's on one hand. On the other hand, find the best agent in that 10,000 agent population. This is an agent that every time they speak to a customer, not only it results in more sales, it also results in a deeply satisfied customer with a higher lifetime value and all those wonderful things. What those two, the best and the worst, share in common is that they can only talk to one customer at a time. It's it's like a almost comical observation because I'm stating the obvious. Of course, you can only talk to one person at a time, except that we're now challenging that and saying there's a there's a way to invert the control of those interactions where one unit of human being essentially is now dealing with a concurrent set of conversations in voice, which, which again, has never been done before. Just, just remarkable. And, and how, uh, how soon will, will this reality uh, be in place? Now that reality wow. is, 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 is now, and that is essentially the path for how a lot of the elimination in the space will happen. Because as you keep increasing concurrency, uh, you need fewer people doing that. So if to use rough arithmetic, if, if you make voice agents 2x concurrent, you need half of them. If you then uh, make them 4x concurrent, you need half of the other half that you that you still have. And, and it kind of asymptotically goes to where the vast majority of those interactions end up being automated and not in the traditional rules-based ways that are represented, like IVRs and chatbots um, can can automate generally low complexity things, but these are hand-designed systems. They're pretty brittle. They're expensive to create because you have to manually integrate them with the corresponding backend systems that had information for what whatever it is that uh, a given flow of, of interaction is, is meant to do. Uh, and that's why we find them frustrating. They're fine for simple prompts like I want to pay my bill or how much do I owe or, or simple things like that. Anything of higher complexity today ends up going to a human agent. And the approach that I've just described is primarily about automating those things that today are not automatable. Those things that today are going to human agents. So and and the way you've described this, Gustavo, this is something that's both uh, good for the bottom line as well as good for the customer, which is kind of in some ways a non-traditional uh, a dual level value a, a, an organization can derive from something like this. It doesn't cost. It, it's not not a uh, uh, dramatic increase in cost in order to improve customer service, as would certainly be the case if you were you know upskilling your your customer representatives. Is that a fair way to typify that? Well, absolutely. Let me let me maybe present it in a uh, through the lens of a completely unrelated field. Let's say you live in a small town and you uh, have a bone fracture, so you need to go get an X-ray, and your local uh, radiologist sees I don't know fifty X-rays a week, and and maybe he's great, maybe he's not great. I'm not making that point. So your option A is. Have your x-ray reviewed by this individual that reviews 50 x-rays a week or have this x-ray review by an algorithm that has been trained on a billion x-rays. Which one would you trust more, right? And I think there's an interesting parallel when it comes to do you want a random draw at a call center agent out of a one in 10,000 population, which might be great, might be mediocre, might be terrible, or do you want this quote unquote generative agent 
that has been trained to be better than the best agent, has more context and, and access to information at a faster rate than any human would, who do you want to help you? Someone that you're going to have high variance or you want the very best at every point in time? And I, and I think that's a interesting um, anal analogy here. Yeah, it really is. A, a, a very fascinating indeed. Gustav, I wanted to also ask you, um, as you look back on your career to date, uh, what have been some of the difference makers for you that have aided you to 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 reach the heights you have as an entrepreneur? Uh, you know, whether that's mentorship, whether that's certain experiences that you said yes to. I wonder, as you reflect on the success you've had so far, um, what what have been some of those the secrets to that success? Part of the secret is that we don't think our, of ourselves as successful. We just think of ourselves in a journey. And in fact, I'll go as much as saying that if the journey isn't riddled with great difficulty, uh, we would be concerned, right? It, it almost, if, if we're trying to push to do things differently and it's an ambitious purpose that you're pursuing, you have to assume on day one, this shall be difficult. Like there is no way out of that, right? So it almost becomes that the validation that you're on 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 a, on a somewhat correct path that that there's resistance, that it's hard, that 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 there's adversity in and in, 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 in the execution of our mission. And I can confidently say that after doing this for many, many years, uh, one attribute that someone in, in in the position of those of us at ASAP needs to have is, an embrace of that and and fairly thick skin to be able to push through all of that adversity and not get uh, uh, emotionally encumbered by 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 the challenges that naturally come with with the path of entrepreneurship and doing new things. So um, it, it's just maybe a, a a bit of a tunnel vision where you kind of lock in with the vision of what's possible and just run through with brick walls uh, and 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 if a brick wall knocks you on your feet how quickly can you get up and and say bring me the next brick wall essentially can i also ask you uh is the bust over your right shoulder is that is that benjamin franklin it is yes he's a remark who's a remarkable human being and uh I've, i'm a big fan of his and a friend who knows about my um, great interest in franklin gave me that as a i think it was a birthday gift so very nice. Um, easily now honored on on that <laughs> shelf. Well, uh, uh, with, with one one inventor over your your, your shoulder and, and another who's inventing inventing a variety of different technologies uh, that that will will have remarkable consequences to to customer service as as you've uh, highlighted so correctly. Uh, I want to thank you so much, Gustavo, for a fantastic conversation. Thank you for sharing a bit about your entrepreneurial journey. Uh, the pathway forward for ASAP uh, certainly seems very exciting and look forward to remaining abreast of the continued progress. Thank you very much for having. It's been a lot of fun and a pleasure to be here with you.